my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Episode 2, Snow Files, The 11th Hour Witness. I wanted to talk a little bit today about the testimony of, of Martinez. I hope by the, the end of the crime scene, the night of the crime, witnesses uh, Martinez, Paul Williams, and Jeff Pilo that I've I've been able to paint the picture that I'm, I'm hoping that everyone can see, and that is, you know, this isn't a, a case of mistaken identity on the part of Danny Martinez. This is the case of a witness absolutely lying about seeing something, and the state knew it, and they used him anyway. So a couple of the things that really stood out to me when he testified was, you know, and there was a lot of things. There's a, a bad thing about the Illinois legal statutes is that a lawyer is only uh, required to turn over to you the the materials that he deems is necessary for you to assist in your defense and there's there's a terrible breakdown in that when you're being represented by attorneys who have no clue what they even have in the first place so you know the defendant would probably go through the the materials with a, with a fine-tooth comb like, like I have when I got it. But one of the hardest things that ever happened to me was when Danny Martinez, you know, pointed the finger at me in the courtroom. And, and I, I knew that he had said in my co-defendant's trial that he was about 85% sure I was the guy that he saw. And then he pointed the finger at me and was like, I'm 100% sure that's, that's the guy I saw coming out of the gas station. I mean, that was that was a terrible moment for me. One of the things that really stood out to me was when he was testifying that he came face to face with this guy and that they were one to three feet away from each other and, and that the guy was the same height as him, five seven. I'm six one. You know, his whole story about he saw the guy coming out of the gas station while he was crouched down by his tire and that he had gotten up and, and, and was walking towards the guy and stopping and turning to look at his car and stuff, you know, you know, all that was being observed by a couple of police officers. But I mean, the, the, the person that had come out of the gas station, if, if that would have been true, I mean, he had, he must've been moving in slow motion <laughs> because, you know, for the guy to have come face to face with him after just shooting someone and coming out of the, the gas station, you know, and he was still crouched down by his tires. It's just, it's just, it's not plausible. One of the other things that surprised me, well, it didn't really surprise me, but kind of stuck out to me was the fact that in all of his police reports, all of his contacts with the police, you know, he never said anything about the guy looked like he'd been up all night, like he'd been up drinking and, and, and doing drugs. When you look at the police reports and you see that he'd never said that before, and then you see that, okay, now he's testifying to that. And, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it just fit in perfectly with the state's case? Because now, you know, they've got these jailhouse snitches saying, 
oh, well, he told me they were out drinking and doing drugs. It just fit perfectly. And I mean, when you look at it like that, it's clear that they were feeding him, they were feeding him information, you know, and I didn't know it at the time of trial, you know, I, some of that stuff I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I didn't even know because I hadn't gotten all the police reports, you know, I, I didn't know that, I think I did know that he picked out a couple pictures on the night of the crime, but, and, and said, you know, it's, it's between these two, neither of which was me, but I didn't know what they'd look like. My co-defendant's lawyer got those photos and, and used them at trial, but, you know, mine didn't. I didn't know that when we were doing the live lineup, he picked out a guy named Steve Van Note, who incidentally, I do remember when they were going around this jail trying to get guys to stand in the lineup, Steve Van Note was like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think I was in jail that night. Check and make sure that I was in jail. If I was in jail, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in the lineup. But if I, if I wasn't, I'm not doing it. I didn't know he picked out Steve Van Note. I didn't know that when they were showing him the, the multiple photo lineups in, in later in 91 and then again in 93 that they had multiple pictures of me in the lineup, but that he'd also picked out a guy named uh, Charles uh, Renfro. You know, I, I didn't know that. Not that stuff that ne never came out. I was a little surprised when my attorney did try to impeach him for asking some questions about the fact that, you know, Bill Little's mom was calling Danny Martinez on the phone and that he'd been, that his number had been provided to Bill Little's mom by the detectives. They gave him, they gave her the number and she was calling him on the phone before he ever identified me. My, my attorney did try to ask about that and, and uh, the judge shut him down. I think, I think we should all know what, what they were talking about. So, you know, those, those are some, some really important, uh, observations by me. A lot of it I didn't know, uh, at the time. The state argued that jailhouse informants corroborated Danny Martinez. And they, Tina Griffin argued that, you know, I didn't want to stand in the lineup, which I didn't want to stand in the lineup. And my, my not wanting to stand in the lineup was corroboration for, Danny Martinez. Well, if Danny Martinez is lying, if he didn't come face to face with anybody in that parking lot that night, no one can cooperate what he said. It's just a flat out lie, and that's my position. I don't think that Jeff Pilo missed the suspect. I'm absolutely positive that Paul Williams didn't miss the suspect. They were called to a respond to an armed robbery silent alarm. They were trained observers. They were focused in on the gas station. They were focused in on, on Danny Martinez. And, and I don't believe that suspect was able to sneak out and get around the corner with all these people, you know, watching the gas station the whole time. And, and, and I'm, I'm really hoping that when you guys review all this stuff, and that's what I really want you to do. I want you to review everything so that you can really make an honest and educated fully informed decision and have an opinion about this that you'll you'll come to the to the same conclusion and, and if you do i hope that you are as disgusted and outraged by it as i am you know there's a there's a legal standard in illinois that says you know that the 
state is is allowed to strike hard blows, but they're not allowed to strike foul blows. You know, and that they're they're not only in charge of ensuring that justice is served for the for the community, but it's their job, the prosecutors, to ensure that someone gets a fair trial, the defendant, and uh, you know, putting people on the stand to to, to lie about things, and it's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, if you look at the the causes of wrongful convictions, the number one cause of, of wrongful convictions in this country is faulty eyewitness identification. I mean, it's even worse when you're you're putting an eyewitness on the stand to testify something that you, you know isn't true. I kind of get why the courts and the, the judges and, you know, in, in the appellate courts and the, the, the federal courts and the circuit courts, they don't, you know, they just don't want to admit that something so terrible and offensive to the to, to the system itself actually took place. You know, they don't want to admit it. So my hope is that everybody will see it and that you'll help us force them to admit it. And I don't care what people think of me personally. I know there's probably a lot of people in the Bloomington normal area that don't really care for me, and I understand that, and I accept it. But you have to think about it in the terms of, you know, if they'll do this to me, if they'll if they'll put that kind of evidence on the stand and, 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 and use it against me, they'll do it against someone you love or care about as well. Don't ever think that they won't because, you know, you guys set the standard. We believe, you know, there was almost $10,000 worth of reward money out there that has completely vanished and and this is something that maybe you know you guys listening can can help us with you know we we want to find out who got that reward money mr bc motors put up five thousand dollars crime stoppers put up 2500 that we know of if anybody can can help us figure out you know how or, or, or maybe what what we can do to try to to get the, the reward money man you know that that's something that uh that you guys could help us do. We believe, I do, that, you know, Danny Martinez received, you know, a portion of that. I mean, he was 85% sure of my co-defendant's trial, and, and he was 100% sure of mine. So I, I think maybe that it may have played a uh, a role in it, you know. And coming up soon, you know, we're going to talk about Carlos Luna and Gerardo Gutierrez and, and how all of that played out. One of the things that also stood out to me later on after we started filing FOIA requests and stuff, you know, the state came up with this whole story about, you know, how they called Danny Martinez down to their office. I mean, this was their scenario. We called him down to our office in July of 2000 for trial prep. You know, they, they were, they were going to prep him for trial. Now, this is a guy that didn't testify to the grand jury. This is a guy that in, in July of 2000 had never identified me. In fact, he had failed to identify me. Every single time they tried to get him to identify me, he failed to identify me. His description of the guy was of somebody, you know, that was 5'7", and they would have us believe that they were calling him down to their office to give him some trial prep because they were actually going to call him as a witness to testify to the guy you saw was 5'7". You stood in the lineup. You didn't pick out Mr. Snow. You picked out these other two photos of these other guys, but it wasn't Mr. Snow. 
you looked at different photo lineups and there were multiple pictures of Mr. Snow in there, but you didn't identify him. So they would have you believe that, you know, they were going to actually call him as a witness and present that evidence because that's all he had at the time. And what really, I think, is really disgusting about that scenario, we find out that they were meeting with him in April of 2000, in May of 2000, in June of 2000, all of them together, state attorneys, you know, the detectives, Jeff Pilo, and he never said, hey, that dude, that dude you arrested, that's him. That's the guy. So, and something else that my lawyers didn't do that really, um, I think is just the craziest thing ever was they didn't call the investigator Mark Foster to testify about his conversations with Danny Martinez. You know, they didn't call him down to their office for this little pre-trial interview until they found out that Steve Skelton was going to subpoena and call Danny Martinez as a defense witness. He he was going to be a defense witness. Danny had told Mark Foster that he saw my paper, my picture in the paper and that I was definitely not uh, the guy that he saw. And that he thought if he ever saw the guy again, he'd be able to to identify him, but that I was definitely not the guy he saw. Uh, and my attorneys never talked to this investigator, and they never called him to the stand. Uh, but we've got his testimony, and you guys can read exactly what he said. It's just a, it is the greatest, the biggest smokescreen house of cards that you could ever imagine. And, and, and I hope... That, that, that we can work together to uh, clear the smoke and knock down the, the house of cards. Martinez testified in Jamie's trial that his family had a particular tradition on Sunday nights. They would sit down and watch TV together. He would go to the Clark station to get some pops, and his wife would make popcorn. Martinez also testified that he had a car tire that would go low, so he took his car with him so he could put some air in that low tire. He stated that when he got to the parking lot, he started to put air in his tire, and while he was doing that, he heard two bangs, and he thought maybe his car was backfiring. After putting air in his tire, he started walking toward the gas station. Here is an excerpt from Martinez's testimony from Jamie's trial. And as you walk towards the gas station, do you notice anything, observe anything? Well, when I was putting air in the tire, I saw a gentleman coming out of the door backwards. And I, I didn't notice anything. You know, it just... I started walking towards the station. And I heard my car was about to die, so I turned around. And when I turned around, I ran. I d didn't run into a person, but I just was maybe a foot three, foot, part, foot apart from the gentleman that was there. Okay, so when you initially saw the individual, they were backing out of the door? That's correct. And then you turned around to look at your car, and then you turned back around to go into the station, and you were kind of face-to-face -face for a while? That's correct. Could you just say what you did observe about, about that person? What did they do? The person stopped the same as I did. We were both surprised. It's just like if you're about to run into someone and you turn around and... 
so after you noticed that about this individual, what did you do? Well, I started walking towards the gas station. At that time, I heard somebody say, hey, hold up or stop. I had turned around and I saw an officer across the street. At that time, there was a pickup that had pulled up into the gas station. And that officer had said to the person in the pickup to get out of here or take off. And then I don't know if he recognized me. From being the next door neighbor, he asked me if I had saw anything. And I told him, yeah, I had just saw a gentleman go around the corner. Why were you walking to the station? Were you going to pay for the air in your tires or buy drinks? No, I was going to buy drinks. You, as I recall your testimony, then saw a man backing out of the gas station. Is that correct? That's correct. And about the same time he turned around is when you were about three feet from him and you looked into his eyes, correct? No. I stated that I was going... When I was pumping air in the tire, I saw a gentleman coming out of the gas station. I started walking to the gas station. I heard my vehicle was about to die. I turned around. When I turned around, I saw a gentleman there. That was surprised, the same as I was surprised, that we were both there. Recall that Officer Pilo was the officer on the scene that parked behind the credit union and approached on foot. Here is an excerpt of the questioning of Officer Pilo. Did you happen to notice anything around the station itself then? The main thing I noticed was a vehicle on the southeast corner of the lot by the air pump. Did you see anybody around that vehicle? There was a man putting air in, I believe it was, the right front tire of the car. And did you do anything once you made that observation then? One of the initial things I did was, I, I can't remember exactly when I did it, but I did indeed run the license number of that vehicle. And did you have any problem when you did that? Yes. The dispatcher wanted to argue about me giving it to her. So did you have a little disagreement with dispatch on the radio then? Yes. We had kind of a prolonged conversation back and forth about why she should write it down. Okay. And were you asking her to hold that license plate? Yes, ma'am. And what did that mean? Hold it means just simply to write it down in case it's needed later. We have a record of it. And when you said that you were kind of having that prolonged conversation with her about that, you kind of leaned over into your microphone that you were wearing? Yes, ma'am. We had to talk and look down at it, yes. Pilo used the term prolonged conversation. But according to the dispatch tape, the exchange from the time Pilo asked to run the plate until he asked her to hold the plate was approximately 20 seconds. He also says he had to talk and look down at his radio. That doesn't even make any sense. Are you starting to see how they got away with it? Officer Pilo on cross-examination testified as follows. Okay, all right. Now after your dialogue with dispatch over running the plate on the Martinez vehicle, what did you do next? Again, I can't put... I remember running the plate, doing other things that I was walking. I remember crossing the street. I remember at one point Mr. Martinez walks towards the station. And then I remember him getting back in his car. And I, I remember him leaving the lot. I can't recall whether he backed out or you turned through the lot. I walked up on the east side of the lot. And I gather from what you've told us, he turned around, walked to his vehicle, and drove away? I, I don't remember seeing him turn around. I remember him walking towards the station, and I remember him getting back in his car as he was coming back to get in his car. Officer, do you recall telling Mr. Martinez to leave the parking lot as you were approaching on foot? No, I never told him that. On redirect, it's clear by the questions asked that the state was trying to imply that maybe Martinez heard Officer Pilo talking to the guys in the pickup truck that had pulled into the lot, telling them to stop or back up 
and that would explain why Pilo said he didn't talk to Martinez before he left the lot. This is important to remember. Pilo explicitly testified that he doesn't remember Martinez turning around. However, in March of 1999, during his interview, Pilo described every movement Martinez made as he was watching him, stating that Martinez got up from airing the tire, walked towards the Clark station, stopped, turned back to look at his vehicle, and then turned around to proceed back to the Clark station. Pilo stated that Martinez then stopped a second time to look at his vehicle again. He then walked back to his vehicle and left the parking lot. Pilo even added that he never spoke to Martinez at all, and also described the distance from the store before Martinez turned around. The evidence from Pilo's taped interview and the dispatch tape proves without question that Martinez left the lot before the truck pulled in. The state knew about Pilo's taped 1999 interview, which was conducted 16 months before Martinez identified Jamie, meaning that the state knew that it would have been impossible for Martinez to see what he testified he saw without Pilo seeing a person nearly run into Martinez. Jamie only heard this tape when he went pro se in 2005 and received discovery. The Pilo interview tape was never used in Jamie's trial. The jury never heard this evidence. Mark Foster was an investigator for Susan Claycomb's defense attorney. Foster gave stunning testimony at Susan's trial. Foster testified that his first in-person contact with Martinez was on July 13, 2000, at Martinez's residence in Bloomington. Foster testified that in his first meeting, Martinez was cooperative but hesitant. Here's an excerpt from that testimony. Let's focus on the 13th, if we could please. What, if anything, did Mr. Martinez tell you about his ability to identify the person he saw coming out of the Clark station? He stated without a doubt that if he saw the person again, he could identify the person. Moving on to your next conversation, is that the entirety of the portion of your discussion that you had with Mr. Martinez on the 13th? I believe it was relating to the identification. We had talked about Mr. Snow at the time, too. And what did he say, if anything, in reference to Mr. Snow? That it was definitely not Mr. Snow that came out of the Clark Station. Martinez had seen the pictures of Susan and Jamie when they were arrested in 1999. He was referring to the picture in the newspaper when he stated to Foster that it was definitely not Mr. Snow that came out of the Clark Station. After this identification, Foster reported the July 13, 2000 encounter to Steve Skelton, Susan's attorney, and Skelton put Martinez on the defense witness list. On July 18, 2000, Martinez was called into a private meeting at the state's attorney's office. Present were Assistant State's Attorney Tina Griffin, State's Attorney Charles Renard, and Detectives Katz and Barkus. Martinez identified Jamie from a picture from the panograph and a picture from an in-person lineup he attended in 1991, in which he failed to identify Jamie, but asked two others to move forward. At that time, Martinez was put on the state witness list. On July 28, 2000, Foster returned to Martinez's residence to ask Martinez about the distance that separated him from the person he saw coming out of the station. During the course of the conversation, Martinez informed Foster that he identified Jamie as the person coming out of the station. Mark Foster testified. What statement, if any, did Mr. Martinez say to you on the date of July 28th concerning identification of the person that he had seen on Easter Sunday, 91, coming out of the Clark Station? On the 28th, 
Mr. Martinez had informed me that he identified Jamie Snow as being the one that had left the Clark station. Let's talk about July 28, 2000. It was a busy day. On that day, the same day that Martinez ID'd Jamie Snow in a private meeting at the state's attorney's office, Clay Combs' attorney, Skelton, and state's attorney, Renard, met to discuss a few case issues. Although general matters were discussed, Renard never revealed that Martinez had identified Jamie previously that day. This is the topic of the pretrial motion. In addition to an attempt to get the ID thrown out because it was coercive, Skelton asked for sanctions against the state for failure to disclose Martinez's identification. The state's attorney's office did not take any notes or write anything down from the meeting with Martinez, and state's attorney Renard argued vehemently that it wasn't Brady material because it was not memorialized. Even though Detective Katz and Barkas told almost every witness how important it was to record interviews, and even though Detective Crow made meticulous notes during his seven-year investigation on this case, this seasoned group of law enforcement that included the McLean County State's Attorney neglected to memorialize on tape or in writing this critical moment when Danny Martinez identified Jamie after nearly 10 years. Skelton lost on both accounts, but the transcripts are well worth reading. Foster testified in the pretrial motion held August 14, 2000, that when he met with Martinez on July 28, 2000, Martinez told Foster, off the record, that a detective showed up and showed him a photo of the lineup, and that's when Martinez ID'd Jamie. Martinez stated several times during that conversation that it was his understanding that they had a lot of evidence against people that were in jail, so they must have the right people. None of this information ever made it into Jamie's trial. On August 10, 2000, Foster again contacted Martinez at his residence, but Martinez would not talk to him. Martinez told Foster he was upset because Foster shared info off the record with the defense team. Martinez said they would talk at a later time, but they never did. At the time of trial, Jamie only knew about six encounters that Martinez had with law enforcement. We saw a few early meetings that were unknown to Jamie before, but of great concern are the meetings with Martinez shortly before he identified Jamie. All of these meetings were not known to Jamie. There was a meeting in the summer or fall of 1999. Katz says he did trial preparation with Martinez. Later in his testimony, Renard poses a question to Katz, and he clarifies that it was actually in April of 2000. There were meetings on and off from the fall of 1999 to July of 2000. Katz testified that he had intermittent contact with Martinez, contacting him up to six times. There was a meeting in April of 2000 at the Bloomington Police Department with Assistant State's Attorney Griffin, State's Attorney Renard, Detective Katz and Barks may have also been present. They discussed the night of the crime, showed crime scene photos to Martinez, so Martinez could point out where he was that night. This meeting could not have been trial prep, because Martinez had not yet been served a subpoena. There was a meeting in late May or early June of 2000 at the Bloomington Police Department with Assistant State's Attorney Griffin and Officer Pilo. Detective Katz and Barkas may have been in and out of that meeting as well. Both Pilo and Martinez were trial witnesses. Why were they in on the same meeting discussing the case before they testified? Martinez testified that when he saw the arrest in the paper, 
that the only person he told was his wife. This was 10 months before he actually ID'd Jamie in that private meeting. Before the time Martinez saw the picture in the paper and the time he ID'd Jamie in the office, which was 10 months later, Martinez was contacted by the state approximately nine times. In each of those meetings, he never said, Hey, the guy from the paper, that's the guy. All of these meetings and contacts were never mentioned in either trial. Okay, as we start our discussion here uh, with Tam and Leslie, we've obviously been focused on Danny Martinez and how he went from a basically just a bystander at the crime scene to their 11th hour star witness. So, Leslie, let's get into the the testimony. Uh, what what stood out for you the most with Danny Martinez's testimony over the years? Well, there are five different stories that Martinez gave over a 10-year span, and they got more elaborative with every telling, um, eventually building up to the point that he becomes a reliable eyewitness to a supposed armed drug addict fleeing the scene after shooting somebody. And it's important to note that one of the first deviations began when he had to explain why an officer uh, didn't chase the suspect he had just reported fleeing the scene. In his first police report, he says he didn't talk to any officer until he was already at his house, which is also what the officers reported. But then eight years later, after cold case detectives started to implicate Jamie in the crime, he changes that story and puts himself back on the scene when an officer was actually chasing somebody else off the lot. So he took that opportunity to claim that dialogue and say it was him that reported the suspect that just went around the corner. And later, he also decides that it's a good time to throw in that the suspect had something under his coat. Uh, The detectives actually brought that up to him to account for a weapon or the missing cash register drawer. And uh, later, at the pretrial for Jamie's co-defendant, over one year later, eyes got brought into this all of a sudden. Martinez made an accusation for the first time ever that the suspect wasn't only surprised, but that his eyes appeared wide because he was under the influence. And he kept elaborating on the eye issue at the actual trial. And he says he was paying so much attention to them that they made him 85% sure it was Jamie coming out of the station. And that story just kept growing. And five months later, he took the stand against Jamie and says he was actually close enough to the suspect to hold eye contact. So he can just never forget those eyes. He's now 100% sure it was Jamie. When he's talking about the eyes, the first time he talks about him being under influence is at that at Susan Claycomb's pretrial motion. So it goes from in the very beginning, he was surprised. They looked at each other and they looked surprised. And that's all he says all throughout those years. And then all of a sudden, he, he looked like he had been up all night under influence. He, he looked like he had been doing drugs and drinking all night, which is kind of an odd thing to say since it was all day, right? Because it happened at eight o'clock that night. But, you know, I just think that's yeah. a really, a really 
important point about the eyes. Also, in Susan's trial, he was 85% sure. Well, she was acquitted. So it had to be 100% with Martinez. What's really important about Martinez, people want to say that he was not the star witness. That because they've discredited him in the courts. But he was the star witness at the time. Now, remember that Susan would not testify against him. They had to have somebody besides a bunch of jailhouse informants. He was a star witness. There is an article in in the panograph after the trial. A juror who asked not to be identified was quoted in the paper as saying that Snow's testimony failed to adequately rebuke the allegations against him. He said, I don't think it was specifically incriminating, but his testimony failed to answer a lot of questions and accusations that could have been answered or should have been answered more easily. The juror said that the most compelling evidence was the number of witnesses who testified Snow made statements implicating himself in the shooting. Also important was Snow's ID by Danny Martinez, the juror said. I really wanted to comment on on this juror's. One of the things that, well, there's a couple of troubling things to me about what this juror said, but, you know, of course, what I've been saying all along is, is, you know, Danny Martinez's identification was critical in in finding me guilty, and, and it's extremely disingenuous by the circuit courts and the appellate courts and the federal courts to say that he... He wasn't an important witness. Clearly, he was. This is the words of a juror saying that his identification was was critical. That bothers me. But but what really bothers me more than anything is that clearly that jury member didn't understand his his duty as a juror in that he was basically saying that you know I had to refute, I had to rebut. Um, the, the, the charges and, and the accusations, which is absolutely not what I had to do. I didn't have to testify. Every single juror was questioned uh, during Vordire, and they were asked specifically, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, they were asked specifically, you know, you do realize that as Mr. Snow sits there right now, he is considered to be innocent, that... He retains that that innocence until or unless the state proves beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty of this crime. You do understand that. And every single one of them said, yeah, yeah, yes. And, and, and they went on and was, was, you know, really drilling at home that, you know, he doesn't have to testify. He doesn't have to say anything. It's not on him to prove anything. It's on the state to prove everything. And every single one of them was like... Yeah, 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 we get it. Yeah, 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 we understand it. <laughs> you know, clearly in his mind, he was saying, you know, he was guilty. And, you know, all this stuff was true. And, you know, he didn't rebut it. He didn't refute it. They just, he just was automatically taking, you know, what these people were saying as being true. Uh, and that it was on me to rebut it and refute it, you know, and, you know, it's, 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 it's a terrible thing that 
simply because you are a state's witness, you automatically start out with credibility. State puts you on the stand, doesn't matter if you're a, a child molester, doesn't matter if you're a bank robber, doesn't matter if you're a, you know, a, whatever your background is, as soon as the state puts you on the stand, you've got credibility, and now, you know, it shifts to the defense to have to, you know, shake your credibility, and it's, it's, it's just, it's an unfair, it's an unfair advantage for the state. I mean, everybody should start on a, on a level playing field, and that's not how it happens. But this guy, this, this juror, absolutely demonstrates with his, with, with his statement that, you know, when people say that, you know, you're, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent, that's absolutely what was going on with that guy. So he was a star witness in this trial, no matter what anybody tries to say and how muddy they want to make it. He was a star witness in this trial, and now we know all of these other things. Luna was the first one that said something about a cash drawer right there at the night. Now he's saying this guy in a long trench coat is coming out, and we're discussing this next week, but the guy... And he and he says he looked like he might have had a cash drawer. Like, why would you even think that if somebody was holding something under his jacket that it was a cash drawer? Like, right, do you that know that never what made I, any sense? That never made any sense. So, what we think, and I hate to speculate, but what we think was that they were when they were doing that canvas that they were at. Did you see anybody leave with a cash drawer? Did you see any? Because they knew that insert was missing. Um. Maybe right. they uh, fed that information because they knew that that piece of evidence was missing from the scene. Very early on, but but Martinez did not say. Martinez said in, in the very beginning, he said no. Did it look like was he carrying anything? No. Was he? I don't remember exactly how how it was phrased, but he said no that he had his jacket zipped up. That he had his hands in his pockets. He didn't say anything about the cash drawer until eight years later in that interview. And that's when Barkas starts saying to him, oh, well, is it possible he could have had something under his coat? And then Danny Martinez says, yes, it's possible. He, he doesn't even go as far to say he did until you get to Susan's trial. Right. It's classic training. I mean, they, they feed you the information slowly and effectively. And pretty soon you're repeating what they told you. Leslie, can we, can we elaborate a little bit more on some of the inconsistencies that Martinez presented on the stand? Yeah, so at Jamie's trial, um, he also changed the popping sounds that his car made into bangs, and that was probably to convince the jury that he heard a gun and not his own car. And it's funny, though, because even though he insisted he came face to face with that suspect, he actually screwed a few things up and he went back to his earlier story and said they were three feet away, which really isn't face to face. And he put himself back down to kneeling at the tire when the guy walked out of the store. And that makes him looking over his hood at him all while an officer is diligently watching him fill that tire. And what's even more ridiculous is what the defense pointed out. Ball caps are meant to shade eyes, so if the suspect was wearing one at night, how did he even see white and bright eyes? And Jamie's five inches taller than Martinez, so it's almost offensive that he can claim he saw his eyes so well while looking up under that ball cap from three feet away. Jamie is six foot one, and Danny Martinez is five seven, and he said he came eye to eye with this man. 
Yes. Which makes very little sense. It's not possible. Exactly. Where um, in previous interviews at Susan Clay Combs trial, he says he came eye to eye. He was one foot away. Uh, Then later in Jamie's trial, he says he came face to face. They made eye contact. But then when he's asked to retell the story again, um, all of a sudden they're three feet away. And that's what he originally said. He wavers. And that's what makes it so muddy is he's like, and in one of the testimonies, he was like, yeah, I was I was, you know, between one and three feet away. You were face to face. Well, between one and three feet away. And a huge point is if Danny Martinez is walking, I mean, the suspect is fleeing, okay? This supposedly fleeing after shooting someone. So he goes all the way out into the parking lot to meet. Danny Martinez face to face, he would have to come out to the parking lot and then go to an angle to go uh, back behind the alley. Now, why would you walk? You would take the quickest path, right? You, you shoot out, so, right? take a left. But he has to come all the way out to the parking lot to see him, meet him face to face. Now, do yes. they speak about the distance at all between the door and where they claim to meet in the parking lot? Yes, he actually says um, when questioned about that multiple times by the defense that the suspect had to step off the curb to get down and walk into the lot instead of continuing on the sidewalk around the corner. And he also agrees that it was probably 12 feet in length from the door to the edge of the building based off how uh, wide the plywood was that was up against the windows. So it's a it's a 12 foot distance. And you know, Tammy's right. He should have just come out, spun around, walked the 12 feet, and then taken a left down the grass to the alley. But Martinez has him placed, spinning around, coming out of the door, walking straight, stepping off the curb, bumping into him, and then making another 45-degree turn and going down the grass patch on another angle. So not only is Martinez changed his story numerous times with how they actually came face to face or one foot or three foot. He also, his storyline is completely ridiculous when you think about where they made contact in his storyline, because the person fleeing in the heat of the moment would have never wandered out into the parking lot and then decided to head around the corner. Yes. And the defense tries to pull that up a few times by saying, um, what color were his shoes? I thought you saw his shoes. And he'll say he saw his shoes, they were white. And he'll say, oh, but when did you see his shoes, though? And Martinez will say, well, when he turned around the corner, I saw the bottom of his shoes from the back. And he'll say, but I thought you didn't watch him when he turned around the corner and walked down the alley. So how could you see his shoes? Um, And that's interesting because really, if he's looking over the hood of his car when the suspect is supposedly coming towards him, how did he see the shoes? So uh, the defense in Susan's trial did a good job of bringing all that up and it was talked about some in Jamie's trial, but definitely not as effectively. At what point in time did the the popping sound go to banging sounds? That happened at uh, Susan's pre-trial hearing. It was always a popping sound that could have been his car backfiring. Uh, and that was from the time of the crime in 1991 through the cold case interviews in 1999. And then all of a sudden in the year 2000, up until Jamie's trial in 2001, there are now two bangs. And it could have been the car backfiring, um, but he never says it 
he heard the two bangs that were, were actually, in fact, his car backfiring. Right. Just that slight change of wording makes me think that's a very clear sign of, you know, being guided by police, you know, and the, the investigators are guiding him along by changing that one word. It's subtle, but it's a big deal. On that note, I've always wondered how if his car backfired, his tail of his car would have been facing Pilo. If he heard that car backfiring, why didn't Pilo hear that car backfiring? If he heard two pops or bangs or whatever you want to call them, how could Pilo not hear that? I mean, they they make it sound like this huge wide space, but that was not wide space at all. He was a few feet from Pilo when he was airing up his tires. But there's really no way that Pilo would not have heard those sounds because they were, like you said, they're very close together. I mean, if you look at the pictures that we have of the parking lot, it's not a large parking lot. There's no way that those sounds would have happened if Pilo was there and he wouldn't have heard it. Well, at that time, Pilo would have been standing across the street on the east side, right across the street. And the air pump is close to the street. So his car would have been facing Pilo. In fact, Pilo would have heard the sound better than Martinez, who was not facing the sound. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. And in Martinez's, um, one of his interviews, they are asking him, well, where did the sound come from? What direction? And he specifically says it came from the hood of my car while I was down at the tire. Is that and where you hear a sound from backfiring? I don't no, think it's so. not. You hear a sound from backfiring coming from the tailpipe. Well, no, no that's, your, that's your entire point, is that it would be coming from the tailpipe facing Pilo. And then he says it's coming from the hood. And, you know, that could be another instance of it leading, you know, where that makes no sense, where it's backfiring. And somehow they get him to relent and say it came from forward facing. Okay, there's a lot to cover here. Uh, Tam, can you chime in? What would you like to add? A, a couple of things. And in 1994, Jamie voluntarily took a polygraph on this case. We didn't have the worksheets from that until recently a few years ago through a FOIA request. And on that FOIA request, it has notes from the polygrapher that he got from the police officer, which was Crow. So it says in the notes, it's talking about the, the guy that was airing up his tire and the witness. It says, witness says, this is not the person he saw, which is something else that was hidden from us. Now we know that you can't use a polygraph. It's inadmissible in court, but those notes should be admissible. That was hidden. It's saying that that, again, Danny Martinez said that Jamie Snow was not the person that he saw that night. Right. Detectives at the time of that polygraph had already known that Martinez said, no, this was not Jamie Snow that I saw that night. Exactly. And then we have another instance of Danny Martinez's prior knowledge. A friend of Jamie's from a long time ago, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away, Billy Hendricks. Now, Billy Hendricks said, Billy Hendricks had, did not have a license. And Danny Martinez, they were both working at the same place in the Union Hall. And Danny Martinez would give him a ride. And Billy gave an affidavit stating that Danny Martinez had mentioned that. He said, I know that I know that you're friends with Jamie Snow. And I just want you to know 
you know, that I haven't picked him out. I know that he's a suspect in this case, but I haven't. I just want to make sure that, you know, he wasn't the one that I saw and that's not who I picked out. So, you know, there's another instance of information that was, you know, that's new. All of these issues, they add up. His evolving story, just with Martinez alone, his evolving story, all of a sudden we see the polygraph. All of a sudden we see that the police were contacting him in in the fall of 1999 after Jamie's arrest. They were following him. They were going after him, going to see him and contacting him nine times. That is not trial prep. No, That's it's not. not trial prep. Now, Jamie mentions that when he's speaking, how many times that, you know, they were in touch with Danny Martinez. And of course, Jamie didn't learn that two years later. But before we get into that, I think it's important. I know you said that the polygraph is not admissible, but I think listeners should understand that Jamie passed that with flying colors. They asked him. Specific questions. Did you shoot William Little? Answered no. He passed. Even if it's inadmissible, he had no problems with that polygraph test. Exactly. And Charlie Crow told him. He said, okay, no, I don't believe that you did this, but I think you know who did. And Jamie said, I don't know who did it. Right. I promise you, I would tell you if I knew who did this. As far as discussing Danny Martinez, those notes on the polygraph are the most pressing issue here. But I think it's also important that people understand that he passed and they they asked him point blank questions and he had no problems whatsoever. Not at all. And we we can post the polygraph on the documents. Now, let's get into this because Jamie talked about it uh, in the his discussion on the podcast this week, how many times they met with Martinez and how his story changed, you know, over time based on those meetings. Can we discuss those meetings a little bit more in detail? Jamie goes by month by month by month. They're just constantly hounding this guy until his story matches exactly what they want him to say. What's really important about this is that Jamie had no knowledge of all of these meetings. So what what we see is that, okay, well, Danny Martinez had four or five encounters with the police. Those were where he was doing doing the lineup given his police report on the night of the crime, you know, a couple of photo arrays over the years. And that's all the jury knew. That was all that was presented to the jury. They didn't know that Martinez had picked out two completely different people. And then over all those years, he never once said, hey, it's Jamie Snow. That's the guy I saw. They never knew all of that information. They never knew. And all of these meetings, these fast and furious meetings, started after um, Martinez ID'd him. As Jamie explained, we have Foster, uh, who was Susan Clickholm's investigator, defense investigator. And he goes out there and Foster and to see Danny Martinez just because he was there. Nobody took Danny Martinez seriously. Right. He wasn't even on the state witness list at that time. And Danny Martinez told Foster that Jamie Snow was not the guy that he saw. He did. And that's what I was getting at is he came out there and he said, hey, you know, and he said, look, I just want to let you know that's not that's not the person I saw. I think I could ID him. That's not the person I saw. Jamie's defense team failed to use Foster at trial. Failed to use Foster at trial. Martinez stated several times during that conversation that after he told Foster that he ID'd him, 
that it was his understanding that they had a lot of ev- evidence against the people that were in jail. And that's what Foster testified to in Susan's trial. And we also have those transcripts up there. You know, that was really important. And then Jamie's attorney did not lay the foundation for Foster to come in and testify. Which was crucial information that was never heard at trial. Absolutely. And this may come in later, but that he was paid thousands of dollars. Frank Pixel was paid thousands of dollars to sit in on Susan's trial. He didn't use the most crucial evidence that they had of Jamie's innocence. Now, Jamie asked if that's a good sign of ineffective counsel. And of course, ineffective counsel is incredibly hard to prove, but that's a sure sign that he had ineffective counsel. And, and one other thing I want to add about the meetings was that there was a meeting with Jeff Pilo and Martinez in the same meeting. What were they doing? You have two material witnesses in the same room getting their story straight. Right. That is so wrong. And it's also something that did, Jamie did not know when he went to trial. Imagine if the jury would have known all of this information that we know now. I mean, do you really think that they wouldn't have had reasonable doubt? Oh, the at outcome least, would have been far different. At least as it as it relates to Martinez. Now, was the information from all these meetings, was it given to the defense and Jamie's attorney didn't use it? Or was it was all that information withheld? I first saw it when I when I got Susan's documents and it was a pre-trial motion, which is, you know, there are many of them. Right. But this was huge. Susan's attorneys wanted them sanctioned because they did not reveal that Martinez had made an ID in that private meeting. And Charles Renard and Steve Skelton, Susan's attorney, They had met the same day after Danny Martinez had made that ID, but they did not memorialize it. And in that motion, that's Renard's argument. Well, it wasn't written down. Well, it wasn't taped. So it's not Brady evidence. I don't have to turn it over. They did not tape that or write anything down on purpose. Although the detectives throughout this whole new investigation that started in 98 had told witness after witness after witness, we have to get this on tape in case something changes. We have to get this on tape, you know, just making sure that everything was documented and everything was taped. And then all of a sudden this one crucial, critical moment where this witness comes up 10 years later and IDs Jamie Snow as the person which happens to be the person they've been after for, for all of this time. And they, they don't say anything about it. The same day they met with uh, Susan's attorneys and didn't say anything about it. And that, that pre-trial motion is one of the most, I, it's, it's got so many details in it that it's unbelievable, but it's the most incredible thing that I've ever seen. And that's where we see they're not getting their story straight because Dan Katz testified Charles Renard testified. Tina Griffin testified. I mean, these these were the key people in this, and they weren't even having their story straight in the pretrial motion. But once it got, well, the judge was like, uh, no, we're going to keep him as a witness. You know, that was it. Now, in the Claycomb trial, at the uh, pretrial 
uh, it shows that her attorneys were at least doing their due diligence. Their challenges might have been rejected, but at least they made those challenges. We never saw that with Jamie's attorneys. No, and, and I love, and, and I guess that's why I would encourage people to read it, because, you know, first of all, they're, these states' attorneys are questioning each other. Right. And, and it's, it's just, and, and correcting each other's testimony with questions. It's the most incestuous sure. thing that I've ever seen. Susan's attorneys were so passionate you can rarely read a read a trial transcript and hear hear the passion, but they were so incredulous that this had happened. Right, they saw right through it, uh, and and they were just floored, and that's why they called for sanctions, which is unusual. Small town defense attorneys calling for sanctions against the state. Sure. Well, we provide all that information. Hopefully people will stop and read it because I, I think that, like you said, it's very compelling, that entire pretrial, all that information. It is. Now, Leslie, before we uh, move on, I want to make sure that we hit all the inconsistencies. I don't, I don't think we can hit all the inconsistencies with Martinez because there's so many. But were there any more details that you wanted to add regarding his changing testimony and changing statements over the years? Well, there is a lot of information and there are a lot of notes. I mean, the uh, defense attorneys go over the, the jacket he supposedly saw the suspect wearing when he left, the length, the color, where his hands were. And they do get him to actually relent that he has no idea what was in his coat, that it was cold that night. His fists were in his pockets because they were cold. He could have just had his own stomach under that coat. So there's so much more, um, so many more examples that you can find. And we really think you should see it for yourself by examining that testimony. And we supplied it on the podcast webpage. Or you can review our snow notes and those cite the changes in more of a list type format that's easier to read. And we've also made a table that compares Martinez's five different stories over time. And that's available online too. And we think that you should take a look at all of it. See, for me, when I've researched this over all these years, the most important thing to me is that Martinez failed to identify Jamie over all that time. So I know that we're focusing on the changing stories, but I think the changing stories simply prove that he had no idea. You know, there was nobody there. Well, you know, I, this whole story is a fabrication. That, and that's a good point. And, and we talked about this earlier, but just to reiterate, there were at least two times over the years where there were multiple pictures of Jamie in the photo arrays and Danny Martinez did not pick him. That is, and you're, you're so right about that. That is huge because he just, he didn't, he did not pick him out even though. And well, most importantly, have, he picked two different people. He, he picked out a guy you. named Charles Renfro and one time he picked out another guy at another time. I don't have the notes right in front of me, but he wasn't, not only was he not picking Jamie Snow, he was picking other people. He was picking other people, but he never made a definitive ID, which is why we think he didn't see anybody. Right. One of the huge issues too, is there were multiple pictures of Jamie. Snow. There are innocence projects, statistics 
that show when you're presented with someone, the same person over and over and over over the years, the way that your memory works, or it could just be, hey, this must be the guy they want. Were there multiple pictures of everybody else? Or was it just multiple pictures of Jamie Snow? We know it was multiple pictures of Jamie Snow. We don't know who the other ones were, but we suspect that they did not know that Danny Martinez was presented with Jamie Snow multiple times over the years just to plant it into his head. Even after he was arrested, uh, Foster didn't go talk to him. It was 10 months after Jamie and Susan had been arrested. And he didn't even say at that time. In fact, he said, no, it was not Jamie Snow. This is not Jamie Snow that I saw. The the people that they arrested, that's not who I saw. So when he testifies, he says he told his wife when they were arrested. He told his wife, and that's the only person that that he told. He says he told his wife, and then 10 months later, he tells Foster, no, that wasn't. And then a couple of, I mean, within a week, he's telling this, he's IDing him from a picture of the very lineup that he, that he attended in right. person. So the those times, those the seeing him over and over and over and the fact that they had multiple pictures of Jamie is absurd that they had multiple pictures of Jamie in those photo arrays. And you know what? We've been trying to get those photo arrays forever and we still haven't been able to get those. They just say they're not there. So right. we have no way of knowing what pictures, what multiple pictures they had. Was it the same picture that he ID'd him from? Right. Just how far did they the go? Picture, when he said he saw the picture in the paper, was that the, was it the same picture? That's what we want to know. That's in Leslie's notes as well. We were talking about it earlier that the Innocence Project lays this out. I mean, you mentioned it as well. The percentages are so high in wrongful conviction cases for witness misidentification. I mean, we're talking upwards of 70% of cases that were the, the Innocence Project deals with DNA, so over 367 cases, and upwards of 70% of those cases include witness misidentification. But I think in Jamie's case, it's even more egregious because not only, there's not a mistake, this was all done by design. You're 100% right on with that. It was, he lied. Martinez lied. He, this is not a, a mistaken ID. He lied. We don't know why, but it doesn't matter, as Leslie pointed out. It doesn't matter. It's not for us to figure out why he lied. It's for us to prove that he did, and I think we have. Oh, it's very clear. I mean, the evidence is there for anybody who's really willing to read through it all. I mean, it's very clear that Danny Martinez has been completely destroyed here. I mean, there's he has no credibility at all. None. In this episode, we focused on demonstrating how Danny Martinez, an innocuous bystander, was modified at the 11th hour, completely morphing into a credible eyewitness by trial. He ultimately convinced the jury that Jamie could have been placed at the scene of the crime. Details were slightly misconstrued and then used by the state as powerful weapons to pull off a wrongful conviction. We really think you should see the discrepancies with your own eyes and take the time to view Martinez's case file for yourself on our webpage at snowfiles.podbean.com under Docs by Witness. And if you have any information of your own, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW.
there is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snell. It is really tragic that 69% of DNA exonerations in the United States involve eyewitness misidentification. But what makes this case even more tragic is that there were actually two other eyewitnesses who reported seeing a different suspect. So how did they get away with this? That's next time on Snow Files. <laughs>